Shalom, shalom. Hello, everybody. Good to see you guys on board. And we are just about ready to go. Just about ready to go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the 52nd episode in studying our Shara B'Tochen? Rabbeinu B'chayah's great monumental work, life-changing work. So, because this is such a monumental book, because, because everything here is so important, I'm going to pose it. That if there are words that are mistranslated, that this will necessarily mean that there's a misunderstanding of the content, and as such, an inability to apply its lessons. Let's say you. So, before we begin today, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to be zeroing in on one word, because I think that this one word can actually make a world of difference in our understanding of both today's lesson, but perhaps in a broader context of how we are to accomplish and achieve building this trust, not distrust, this trust in Hashem that we're speaking of, and, and actually achieving a life lived with certainty and inner tranquility. It's not easy. It requires a tremendous amount of effort. 
this might be the most important thing that we'll ever do. I don't mean that as hyperbole. But in order to be able to achieve it effectively, we really need to know what it is that's expected of us. Today, we are going to be looking at what Rabbeinu Bechaya calls in the third chapter, the sixth criteria. It's on page 65 if you're following along in the Kihat edition. And I'm going to open by reading aloud Vahashishi and the sixth. So the Neder Bakredish tells us immediately, Hu Inyan Shvi, the sixth is the seventh. I mean, namely, the seventh of the second chapter. Now, as you may remember, the second chapter was comprised of really two parts. First, an introduction to seven criteria that are considered to be critical if one is to successfully place trust. And then, kind of an overview as to how these qualities or criteria would best be found in God himself. In the third chapter, Rabbeinu Bechaya reimagines these seven criteria, but now he's not just talking about nebulous criteria that could apply to any provider. And he's not just mentioning that these things will be found in God himself, but he's highlighting and emphasizing how these are the criteria that make up our relationship with God. And as such, it's only natural, albeit counterintuitive, but it's natural for us to lean towards trusting in Hashem. And if we will only use those natural gifts that we were endowed with, it's natural for a person to want to be successful. It's natural for a person to want to find satisfaction in life. It's natural for a person to want to be achieved, to be accomplished. Achievement comes naturally, at least the drive for it. That doesn't mean it's intuitive. All of these things require great effort, but ultimately we are harnessing that which comes naturally to us. Walking comes naturally to human beings, and yet when we were babies, our first steps were painful. We faltered, we fell, but eventually we developed the ability to balance and to move, which is natural. We are naturally predisposed. Let me repeat that. We are naturally predisposed not only to have faith in Hashem, not only to believe in a higher power, and we've talked about this a lot, but furthermore, we are naturally predisposed to trust Hashem. But it will not happen by itself. So the shishi, the sixth, that's really the seventh, as the Marpil and Nefesh says also, who are shvis? And the obvious question that we've visited and revisited as we are making our way through the third chapter is, why does Rabbeinu Bechaya change the order? And the simple um, framing of the answer is, in order to ensure that this works. Because now he's not talking about things conceptually, now he's talking to us. 
Now he's trying to help us to nurture and to develop these very qualities or awareness of these qualities so that we can bring forth the trust that we naturally have in Hashem. So, with that little preface, and now that we've got past the word Vahashishi, the next word in Rabbeinu Bechaya's statement is a word that has not yet been seen. Shockingly. It has not yet been seen, I don't even think in this book, certainly not in this sort of stream of teaching, in the conveying of these particular ideas, the different criteria. And the word is Sheyeda. Sheyeda is a permutation of the Hebrew word or noun, Yidiya, knowledge. Sheyeda. That he, she, you and me should know. Sheyeda rav toiv ho'elekim al ha'odam. So that we might know the great benevolence, the great goodness that God bestows upon us. Now, I look towards the contemporary translations to see how they would render the word sheyeda because this word hasn't shown up yet. And I cannot overemphasize how important it is to watch the words. One of the greatest translators of medieval times devoted his life to faithfully rendering a, a translation from Judeo-Arabic into Hebrew. And we know that he was so careful. He's not the first one to translate Shara B'tachem. The previous translation faltered and failed. But this translation is still being studied assiduously across the centuries. So I could only expect that those who would translate this into English would do it with the same sincerity, the same devotion, taking things as seriously. Well, I'm disappointed, but okay. Maybe I'm wrong. But let me tell you how it's rendered. Sheyeda, the word yeda comes, strictly speaking, means knowledge. Yidya is knowledge. Ladat is to know. So here in the Kahat edition, he renders it, the sixth, Recognize the great kindness. Recognize. Which is pretty unusual that he would, he would do that. And I'll tell you why. Because, because if you turn back to page 58, when we're introducing the third chapter, it says, and I quote, Sheyamin v'yit borer. Well, first it says, Asher that when we have a birur, which I'm going to translate as clarity, va'amitatan, bibiruran, clarity, and, and uh, like a truth, to understand the truth, the clarity and the truth of these ideas. And then it says, Sheyaman, he should believe, v'yit barer. So he translates it, we must believe and clearly recognize. Okay, Rabbi. So, which means recognize? Does yeda, which means to know, is that mean recognize? Or does yidbarer mean recognize? They can't both mean recognize. Recognize means, well, to recognize. 
So you could pick somebody out of a crowd. That's called recognition. <laughs> Your phone might recognize you. That's called recognition. You can acknowledge something somebody did for you and award them public recognition. That's called singling somebody out. Recognition means to single something out from others. It doesn't mean to know something. It could be a form of knowledge or a form of showing you have knowledge of something. But in and of itself, recognize is not to know. You can choose to recognize. Or you can be struck with recognition. So, oh, so now I know. It's not the same thing. So this bothered me very much. I was very disappointed. It just doesn't, just doesn't add up. I took a look in the, another contemporary translation. So in the art school translation, he says, Sheyeda, he should take heed. Oy vey. Take heed does not mean Sheyeda. Sheyeda means he should know. Now, maybe you need to take heed in order to know, but Sheyeda means to know. Why would you translate take heed? Take heed means to pay attention to something. I don't know. I, I don't understand why this isn't translated right. I went back to the beginning of chapter 3, and he says, He translates it here as becomes convinced. Okay, that's a lot of liberty, but it's, it's not definitely a literal translation. Then he says, And he translates, which means clarity, as recognize clearly. Okay, I don't know why you have to say recognize clearly, but let's say that clarity means I can recognize something clearly. And that means yitbarer. What does yeda mean? This is not like a little deal. It's a big deal. Because if we're going to understand what Rabbeinu Bechaya is saying, we're going to be able to take that knowledge and put it to work. And if we can put it into practice, we can actually achieve some incredible things. Namely, uh, actualizing God's blessings in a manner that otherwise is simply beyond the scope, reach, or purview of humanity. And wouldn't you like to live a life that's peaceful? Wouldn't you like to be able to be tranquil, have no anxiety whatsoever? I would. Okay. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar promised that that's the goal. He said he can get us there. Do you think we should know what he's saying? So with this little preface, this is the uh, <laughs> initial point of departure. And there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of this today, a lot of focus on the precise verbiage. It's interesting to note that the commentaries don't talk about, they don't talk about the, the word yeda. They don't explain it. Although they do explain many of the other words that show up in this paragraph. I also just want to, in a final point out, is that in the second chapter, when we speak about these different categories, if you will, or these different criteria, the word knowledge doesn't show up at all. It doesn't say to know anything. It, it's simply, it simply speaks in the terms of, in the terms of, Kasha um, Nachker, for example, on page 50. When he begins to talk about these seven qualities that are found only in God, he says, when we examine, 
or maybe investigate. And he talks about knowing it with clarity. We'll see Bibiruim, we won't see this anywhere else in any other creatures. And he goes through the qualities, but he, he's just going through categories. He's not speaking about how we are relating to them. And in the first time, in the first iteration, when he goes through the seven criteria, the different categories, he just says that when a person sees these things, is aware of these things, <laughs> with the exception of the very first, when he says, the very first is about care and concern, which he terms love, mercy, pity. He says, Ha'adam kishahu yodeya, when the person knows that his friend really cares about him. Not sheyeda, not that he must know, but a person knows. A person knows and his friend really cares about him. And then the rest of them are not termed or framed in knowledge altogether. So, this is what I think is going on here. <laughs> and it has something to do with the thesis that uh, you know, we've kind of started to develop in this third chapter. Namely, that Rabbeinu Bachaya is no longer discussing things on a conceptual level. But at this point, he's talking in a manner that's relevant for us. As mentioned time and again, now he's addressing us in the field of emotional quotients. It's about, it's about us feeling. Because betochen, trust in Hashem, is not simply a cerebral awareness, but it has everything to do with the way we feel. Fear is a feeling. Tranquility is a feeling. Certainty is certainly a feeling. Betochen is a feeling, as we've described and talked about. So if this is about feeling it, it's feeling it. Incidentally, in the previous episode, Rabbeinu Bechaya finished with the words, Kishayar Adam. Regish means to feel. It's an emotional, touchy-feely thing. Kishayar Adam. When a person feels, that nobody else, so to speak, no creation can help or harm without the permission of the Creator. That's on page 64 in the Kihat edition. Feels. And here we've moved from feels, which is what this is about, into sheyeda, that he must know. So what I want to suggest to you is that this has everything to do with the full meaning of the word to know. It's not just a cerebral thing. In the third chapter of Lakutia Amorim Tanya, Rabbi Schneir Zalman, the Alter Rebbe's magnum opus on mystical thought, philosophy, and teaching. In these 53 chapters, the Alter Rebbe sketches the essence of our spiritual persona and the tasks that lie before us, and strategies and wherewithal 
by which we can achieve success, lasting success. One of the first things that he sets out to do is give us clarity as to who we are. Namely, we're anashama. What exactly is a soul? In as many words as we're able to understand. And then, what are the functional levels of the soul? And we said the soul functions in the realm of intellect and the realm of emotion. In the beginning of Peter Gimel, the Alter Rebbe introduces something called Chochmah. Freely translated, it's an, an epiphany or a creative moment. Chochmah could represent a new idea or it could represent the moment an old idea suddenly dawns upon you. Like, you don't understand something, and somebody's explaining it once, twice, three times, and you finally go, oh, I got it. Ah, that aha moment is chokhmah. The aha moment can dissipate as quickly as it arrives. What's needed for us to be able to have a proper understanding is to analyze. You know, to think things through carefully. And then, there's another component. The three of which are called imaot, or that which births emotions. The third element is called dat. Strictly speaking, dat translates as knowledge. However, the Alter Rebbe immediately addresses this term and he says on a mystical, perhaps even philosophical level, the word dat is not simply depicting or describing a cerebral awareness. It's not just an intellectual thing. Vada says the Alter Rebbe, the first time the Torah uses the word das, which we translate as knowledge, it's not referring to a classroom or somebody who wrote or read a book. It's referring to the first time human beings experienced intimate connection. Adam, the first human being, was a, a strange creature. Unlike the rest of creation that was originally created in both male and female dimensions, the first human being was a strangely androgynous sort of creature with literally two faces or two sides. Adam tries to find companionship. He tries to find a sense of intimate comfort and closeness with the animals. It's not a natural fit. It doesn't seem to work. And after Adam has this awareness, Hashem puts him to sleep. And he performs a surgery. He takes one side off and he builds a new and improved version, and he calls it the Isha. And he introduces Adam to his better half, quite literally. Adam, this is Eve. 
You should get to know each other. And after God makes the match, he steps into the background, so to speak. And Adam and Eve get to know each other. The climax of their knowing each other is the intimacy they experience. And this intimacy is satisfying to Adam. It's real. He feels like he's actually connecting with another person, another entity. Rather than just releasing his own lust or pent-up emotions, he's relating to somebody, he's connecting to somebody, which incidentally is what intimacy is supposed to be from a Torah perspective. It's not about releasing passion or, or, or a, a build-up which causes a moment of pleasure. That's not what it's about. It's about transcending yourself entirely and being able to unite with one other special human being in your life. That's supposed to be ishve ishte, husband and wife. So when the Torah uses the word knowing the first time, it says Adam knew Eve. So on a pshat level, when you read the scripture, simply, it's not an issue. The Torah is very, very careful with the words it uses. There's no vulgarity. There's nothing inappropriate that's spoken about in the Torah. And even things which describe the kinds of conditions which are not for public consumption, nonetheless, the Torah uses a very, very modest, understated language. Okay, we know what this means. But on a deeper level, says the Alter Rebbe, and here he's quoting Lurianic manuscript known as Yitzchayim, the manuscript of Lurianic teaching that was authored by Reb Chaim Vital. He says, Vuhu, and that is to say that Yoda, he knew her, he knew Chava, is l'shoin hiskashrus v'hischabrus. It comes from the word kesher. Kesher is a knot, to become knotted together. It comes from the word hitchabrut, l'chaber, is to conjoin, to fuse things together. It represents a fusion of two entities. It represents a knotting together of different or previously disparate realities. That's the meaning of Yoda. So, so what is that? In other words, the point of Das, when we describe it in the terminology of an intellectual faculty, is not only the ability to grasp an idea, but to figure out the instructions, to be able to read a book and know what you've just read to the point that you can actually repeat it over in your own words. No, 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 no. That's, that's not his kashos, that's not his chabros. That doesn't represent a knotting, a sewing, a, a, a fusing together. That's not a, an act of weaving. It's an act of awareness. I didn't know about this, now I know about it. I figured it out, okay. But rather, when you reach a level of das, it means that there's a oneness created. Something's actually woven into your person. As in, when this knowledge becomes a part of you, you are no longer the same person. Because you and the knowledge have united. And as such, before there was you, the ability to know of something, and then there is this knowledge which could be known. And then there's you and the knowledge 
as you've come together. And now you're a person who is in the know or is connected to this idea in such a powerful way that it changes you. It's become woven into your persona. It's part of your DNA now. So you're enriched by it. It's self-understood that this kind of knowledge cannot be applied to God. Because that would necessarily indicate that there was a past and a new present for divinity, which is impossible. We'll come back to that later. The point that I want to make with you is that the word das in the scripture does not simply mean a casual awareness. It doesn't simply mean a cerebral knowledge of something, but rather it means that this deeply affects you like an experience. Has it ever happened to you that you meet a person and they're talking about something? And you're like, yeah, I know what that is. And they'll say, no. You have no idea what that is. You heard about it. You read about it. You don't know what it is. You know what it is when you experience it. Can you explain the feeling of having a child if you never had one? I don't think so. Can you explain what the satisfaction of having toiled and worked to achieve something and then actually achieving that success, can you explain that to somebody who's never worked a day in his or her life, who's never really accomplished or achieved anything because it was given to them on a silver platter because they don't know the meaning of hard work? Can you explain that? You can use words. But until somebody experiences it, they don't really know it. Sometimes, Rahman people are in pain and people say, oh, I, I know what you're feeling. And they get offended. And they go, you don't know what I'm feeling. You can't know what I'm feeling. Because you never felt it. Well, I didn't say I felt it. I said I just know it. Intuitively. We know that knowing is not just an awareness but rather an all-pervasive connection to something, to identify with, to relate in a very personal way. That means to know. So the Alter Rebbe goes on to say that the concept of immersing one's mind in something, the concept of beyond what's called understanding it, but rather contemplation, is what yields this new kind of awareness. And he says, how does one affect das? What if it's not something you can experience? Pain is experienced. Pleasure is experienced. There are experiential dimensions of life. You have to experience them. You can't, can't learn about it. You can learn lessons to prepare you for it, and then you have to experience it. So the Alter Rebbe says, on an intellectual level, something can move from being in the realm of awareness or academic knowledge into something that's experiential, something that becomes a part of you. And that can, be, can happen or be achieved. Shemekasher daitoi bekesher omits 
When a person binds himself to something, connects himself to an idea in a very powerful way, when he continues to focus on, to zero in on, and to contemplate, can I say meditate? On a concept. It doesn't just mean to casually think about it. It means you, you're really going to think about it. Have you ever had to make a decision and you say, I need to think about that? You say, okay, did you think yet? Say, no, 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 I need some time. Sometimes it's not something you actively think about. It's just, you know, you go with your gut, as they say. You let it sit inside you for a day or two and you say, ah, you know what? Either I've gotten comfortable with this or I didn't. But then there are times when I need to, I need to think about this. <laughs> I was recently speaking to somebody about uh, something of importance and asked me for assistance in trying to figure something out. And I said, I don't quite understand exactly what you're looking for. Can you, can you just clarify what it is you seek and then I'll try and help you? And they said something I thought very intuitive. They said, okay, I need to have a clear head to sit and think about this and formulate for myself exactly what I'm looking for so that I can help you help me. And that's what this person did. They, they a while later, sent me a message that here's what I'm looking for. <laughs> it wasn't easy to help or find because I don't know that what we look for was necessarily always there. But here it took time for a person to even know what precisely they were seeking. That's the kind of thought that becomes a part of you. I've often told people that das is almost like a bias, a predisposition. I know bias sounds like a terrible word, but we're actually biased about the word bias. Because for the most part, the word biased has been used in racial terms. So if a person is disparaging towards people of a different orientation or skin color, then they're called biased. Oh, if that person has white skin or black skin, or if that person's eyes are shaped this way or that way, they must be A, B, or C, or D. Smart, capable, stupid, incapable, and so on and so forth. Dishonest, honest, whereas the truth is that each and every one of us should be judged by the content of his or her character. Who is this person? Not what does this person look like to you? So bias has become a biased. We're biased to the words word biased. But bias can actually be a positive thing. One of my colleagues coined this beautiful phrase about the Rebbe's attitude on life. He called it positivity bias. So the Rebbe would see any situation, and the first thing, his first thought was, seeing it in a positive light. Not because he worked on, so look at that, that's terrible. How will I reframe that? He didn't see it as terrible to begin with. Most of us are biased the other way around. We see things in a negative light and we have to work on ourselves to uplift our perspectives. But to the Rebbe, being a product of nature and nurture, I don't know. He had a positivity bias. He saw things in the best of light Intuitively. Uh, certainly at some point in his life, intuitively. Okay, so what, is this, what does this really mean? How do we do this? I want to share with you a, a piece of something. 
that's a kind of a funny word, a piece of something. <laughs> a couple of lines out of a mimer, out of a Hasidic rumination that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe delivers in the spring of 1941. So it's based on a verse in the Torah, a verse that's found in the second section of Deuteronomy in Parshas Veschan, it says, You should know today, and you must take to heart. So the previous Rebbe begins to analyze this verse, and he identifies it as a verse that speaks to the sacred duty, the commandment, divine commandment, the mitzvah of Yedia Selikus, that we should know God. Interestingly, he says, this mitzvah is chovat halev v'hamoach. This is obligatory in one's attitude, mind, perspective, but it is also obligatory to be experienced in the recesses of the heart. Do you know the name of the book we're studying? It's called Chovat Halavavot. The obligations of heart. So this is an obligation of heart. One of the obligations of heart is Betochen. We're required, we're mandated to develop Betochen. It's a feeling. So the Rebbe says, he asks in the Maimra, the question, What does it mean to return this to your heart or to take to heart? He says, It starts over You should know today. He says, Adas, so it's the idea of Das. What is Das or knowledge? What does it have to do with the heart? What's the difference in my heart, isn't it? Important thing is, I should know it. And he sets out to explain this idea called Das. So let me share just like a few snippets in case you want to take a look. You can see this for yourself. I'm, I'm quoting from the Sefer of my modern Tafshin Aleph on page 113. So the Friedrich Rebbe establishes this notion, this idea, that in order to achieve das, one requires hitbonenut. Hitbonenut is often translated as meditation. It makes a lot of people in the Western world queasy. They think you have to wear a turban or sit on a pillow, cross-legged, to be meditating. Although we actually meditate on things all the time. As I said a few moments ago, when you say, let me think about that, what did you just say? You're talking about meditation. But be that as it may, maybe the word contemplation is something that people are more comfortable with thinking about it. He says there's this thinking. But there's two kinds of thinking, he says. A person could perform something called histaklut, to look deeply into something. As people say, let me look into that. He says histaklus, Looking into something is far more profound than re'iya, seeing something. When it comes to seeing, your eye can see, but the person didn't really see anything. Did you notice? Did you, did you look carefully? I don't know, I saw. But you didn't see. Or people will see different things. 
If a person is preoccupied, or in today's day and age, distracted. And something, something really important, like, uh, what did my friend have for lunch and post on Facebook? It's really just important things. And you get like preoccupied, or maybe more like dis- distracted with that, with these important things. How many likes did I get? You know, things that are important. So what happens is, the Ozke Shuhuraya Eze Mara, when you see something, you see some kind of some kind of image, some kind of scene appears before your eyes. Your eyes see it. They see the scene. doesn't know what he saw. What did you see? I don't know. Didn't you notice? Did you look into it? I was busy. There was another tweet to look at. I was looking at the tweet. You know, we do this all the time. We see things, but we don't really, really see them. Heather Yudiyazu, this lack of knowledge is what the Friedrich Rebbe says we're referring to when we say that a person needs to have his stocklos, look deeply into it. It's not a lack of knowledge per se. The person knows what he saw. But he didn't look into what he saw. He didn't really see it. As people euphemistically say, ah, now I see what you mean. And here he is a fascinating metaphor. Kumoyal Derech Marshall, for example, a person goes to a museum, he's looking at a painting. He's in the Louvre, the Hermitage, the Royal Ontario Museum, I don't know, so he's looking at paintings. And he sees a Tmuna. Mimitsayer Mufla. He's looking at a Rembrandt. Doesn't see Rembrandt there. It says an amazing artist. A Leonardo da Vinci. A Van Gogh. And the picture is a picture of a court proceeding. A base mishpat. In the court proceeding, in the courtroom, there's Dayanim, there's judges, there's witnesses who come to bear testimony. There are police officers law enforcement agents. There's a plaintiff, the person whose life is now in balance. There may be a military kind of attachment there. So the real painter is able to capture the emotion, the drama that grips the courtroom and the feelings or the consciousness and state of being of each of these players. For example, he says, if it is truly a gifted artist, so then you will be able to look at the faces of the judges and see wisdom reflected. Because the judge is supposed to be wise and discerning and intuitive and understanding. The officers will often be cruel and indifferent to human suffering. The plaintiff may be filled with regret. Regret at things said or done or getting caught. Subservience, humility, inner brokenness. 
He says, imagine if you could in your mind's eye. Imagine if you could have been present when Yosef met his brothers. In the, in the painting, there would have been the incredible depiction of the souls present, of the intense emotions that would have been playing itself across the face of the different participants in that fateful and dramatic meeting. Imagine the spirit that would have expressed itself in the face of Yehuda. A spirit of courage, a spirit of, of, of strength, along with maybe a certain subservience. Imagine the humility. Imagine the almost bashful shyness that would have expressed itself on Yosef's face as he's about to reveal himself to his brothers, to confess and tell them who he is. And so the, the Rebbe says, these are examples of somebody who could look, he says, a person who has what he calls a chush hatsir, a person who's able to look at a painting and appreciate it. <laughs> I happen to be gifted with a little bit of artistic talent and ability. I can draw, I can paint a little. I can appreciate art. I can look at a painting and I can see something in it. And then some people don't have a, they don't have a, a finesse, they don't have a, a sensitivity to this. Whatever, it's a painting, it's a picture. A picture's a picture. It doesn't say anything, it doesn't do anything to you. So you can see it, and you can see it. It depends who you are. And most importantly, the Rebbe says, even just looking at it, it means to take the time to look into it. The person who doesn't look into it, the second time he sees it, doesn't make any more difference. See, I, I, oh, I saw it already. The person who sees something and looks at it, can look at it again, can see new things in it. It's phenomenal. It speaks to the person because they're reading into it or seeing it for what it really is. And the Friedrich Rebbe goes on to describe that if you really see something, even when you are no longer present or looking at that depiction or painting, you can still bring it to mind. You can still see it. There's something that still pulsates. It resonates in your memory. This, my dear friends, is the concept of Das. Not literally, but cerebrally. An intellectual, not only awareness of something, but looking deeply into something so that you actually experience it. And it changes who you are. The Friedrich Rebbe finishes the Maimari, he says, this is the meaning of what Hashem expects of us. The Yadai Tahayim, you have to know this, but it's not enough to know it. In Yiddish, there's an expression that goes, Nishnor Heren, not only to hear, over Der Heren. To Der Her means to be able to have a deep-seated appreciation, not just a casual awareness. And he says, 
The Friedrich Rebbe says, Cheves gavrohu b'yediyas elikus. It is obligatory, it is a mandate for each and every one of us, not only to have an awareness of godliness, but it's mitzvahs chovat halevehamoach. It's a mitzvah that's binding on an emotional and a cerebral level. But in order for that to happen, in order for you to be able to feel it, ah, first comes via daita. Once you know it, once you look deeply into it and contemplate and focus on it, eventually it filters through the proverbial division of heart and mind and it enters the chamber of the heart. It infuses our emotions and our passions. It gives us a sense of awe and a sense of reverence. It develops a Yiddish heart, the way a Jew is supposed to feel in his or her heart. Not only know it in an academic or ivory tower in different aloof, cerebral, or intellectual fashion. And he uses the term, he finishes off, this happens. Really to put your heart into this. So, what does Rabbeinu B'chayim mean? when he says, Hashishi Sheyeda. And why didn't he say Sheyeda before? Because what we're about to speak of can actually be known to the point that you feel it. Everything else we've talked about up until this point is true. It's even obvious. It's what we call faith factoids. It's not something you can actually like see and feel. You can't fully personalize it to the point that your knowledge of it will necessarily change and modify who you are as a person. The only other time we had a word like knowledge used was in the very beginning of the seven criteria, the first of which was friendship the friendship you know if somebody is your friend you know it you know who your friends are when Rabbeinu B'chaya talks about what he's about to discuss here God's benevolence God's kindness God's generosity to us he says, this you can know. This is so close, you can know it. And this, I'd like to suggest to you, is why the seven criteria are arranged differently in this third chapter, because here, it's different levels of experience. What was intellectually speaking, the seventh level in the second chapter, now, emotionally speaking, is the next step. The end of the fifth criteria was sheyargish. You can actually feel it. And here it is sheyeda. So how would I translate the word sheyeda? It's a good question. I definitely won't say you should take heed. And I certainly won't say you should recognize. 
I think it would perhaps be a pervasive knowledge or all-pervasive knowledge, a deep-seated, a profound knowledge, a profound awareness, not just a recognition, an experiential awareness. It's like when you're aware of something. You know it's cold. You know it's hot. You know you're in a hostile environment, or you know you're aware of these things. You're aware of it. Not because somebody told you. And if they have to tell you, you're not aware of it. And if you're aware, nobody has to let you know. We should be aware of God's kindness. Aware of Rav Tuv, what is called the great goodness. Rabbeinu Bachaya now adds to the Rav Tuv to the great abundance of goodness, divine goodness bestowed upon us. In plain English, count your blessings. How much did you pay for your eyesight? Do you value your ability to hear? Coordination? The fact that your body is functioning? The gift of life? That's the ultimate gift. How aware are you of that? How appreciative of you are you? There was a wonderful man named Jay Litvin. He was a journalist and a writer from Wisconsin. He ended up embracing his Yiddishkeit. And in the end, he moved to the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael. He made Aliyah. He lived in Kfar Chabad. And tragically, he came down with leukemia. And he had to have blood transfusions. In the end, he died at a very young age, unfortunately. He's a marvelous writer. And he writes this article about coming into a clinic and he's sluggish. He's barely aware of his surroundings. And then he has a blood transfusion. Suddenly he says everything is like alive again. And he's aware of himself and others. He sees a world in full color. And he's delighted with what, he, what he's experiencing. And he wonders why nobody sees what he's seeing. How often do we not appreciate something or value it until we don't have it anymore? <laughs> How silly is that? Wouldn't it be wise for us to be aware aware of God's incredible kindness. And this is not something that we stumbled upon now. This started at the very beginning. Ever since when, as they say. <laughs> How did the comedian say? In the beginning, I was born. Well, that's the way the Toiv Halavonen translates the words Ma Shehit Chil Oto. He says, the day of his birth. But the Ne'er de Bar-Kodesh has a very different take on it. And frankly, I don't even understand how the Toiv Halavonen could translate Ma Shehit from his beginning by referencing the moment of crowning a birth because it seems pretty clear to me that Abinu Bechaya is going to emphasize the concept of gestation and conception itself in just a moment. 
So the Nedab HaKadosh, who seems to me, correctly identifies the idea as Omashahit Chil Imo. He says, Lomar, Ratzalomar, he means to say, Mitchilat Haviato, from the beginning of his existence. Hamtsi Ito, Me'efes, the bringing forth of you and me from nothing. From a drop of bodily fluid, a drop, a microscopic drop. The who, and this is miroiv hachesed v'hatoiva. This is the great kindness and the goodness, says the Neder Barkaydish. Bishas ofsoi, when you were but a flash, a moment of conception. Until you were formed. You weren't deserving of kindness. Who were you? A somebody that wants or expects kindness. You were a, a few cells. A few tiny cells. For that little tiny seed to be absorbed into his mother's womb. Now, Rabbeinu Bachaya is in a moment actually going to reference what he wrote in Shar HaBachina. Perhaps you could translate it as the gate of examination, maybe. <laughs> I don't want to go into translation, whatever you translate that now. But there he explains at great length how a woman's womb is perfectly formed and suited for the formation of a baby. And how this phenomenon shows God's great kindness and wisdom. I mean, over there he describes the extensive kindnesses that are evident in the formation, development, and then the subsequent birth and the growth of human beings. You know, in episode 48, I actually like, educated myself and Googled some stuff to share with you about how many miracles occur, how many amazing things happen in the first minutes and hours and days of our existence. You're a drop. And everything happened just right. To the point that we were born. Baruch Hashem, in a healthy fashion. It's unbelievable. So this, says the Nadeb this is what we're talking about. This is really the, the emphasis here. Now, it is extremely interesting to note that we hear of rov hachesed v'hatova. The abundance of kindness and goodness. But the sentence began with an awareness of rav tuv, not rav tuvo v'chasto, or chasto v'tuvo. So we cannot um, ignore the fact that here in mid-sentence, Rabbeinu Bechaya switches from just awareness of goodness to emphasizing rov hachesed v'hatova, the abundance of kindness and goodness. Mibli sheyiroi etzlilakach, without you being really deserving. There was nothing even to have mercy over. Nobody even looks. 
And miscarriage is a terrible, terrible thing. Terrible. A baby who doesn't make it is it's awful. The later on, the more awful it is. Baby born and dying is terrible. No one should ever know from such things. Do you know that many, many times when a woman gets a period, the body is cleansing itself of an egg that was fertilized a few days earlier and didn't make it? Does anybody cry over that? Even if they were to know, even if they were to know they got pregnant yesterday and whatever it was is gone today. Anybody think twice? The compassion of a mother is the most powerful emotion known to humankind. Torah says so. It's innate, it's organic, and it's incredibly profound. And yet, for a tiny piece of plasma, a tiny drop of body fluid, nobody has mercy. But God does. Because God does all this kindness, all this generosity, with a drop, before anybody else would. You weren't deserving. Let's say a person is down, out, broken. Say, please have mercy on me. Why, why am I not deserving of mercy? Yes, I'm not deserving on a, a, on a level of justice. I don't deserve. I haven't earned my keep. But please have mercy on me. We're supposed to be merciful to people, compassionate to people, because Hashem is compassionate to people. We talked about that in a previous episode. Compassion is a gift from God. True compassion. But compassion over a, a, a live drop, <laughs> over a fertilized egg, who has compassion for that? That is the ultimate example of something which is enoi which is not worthy of, not, not deserving of, Compassion. It's, it's not even compassionable. And yet, God has compassion on that little drop. And the proof of the pudding is that I'm speaking and you're listening now. We were once that little drop. We were once that tiny microscopic egg. So there's a lot of chesed and tov, even though you weren't deserving. We say, well, so, I mean, God did it for himself. No. Big mistake. It's not because God had a need. Why do people do things? People do things because they have a need. Sometimes people do incredibly generous things, incredibly kind things, incredibly good things. But they're motivated because they want to feel as if they've made a contribution. The Talmud tells us that even more so than the benefactor does for the recipient, the recipient does for the benefactor. Now, if you're a, bene a recipient, don't go to your benefactor and thumb your nose and say, hey, you know, you need this more than me. That's just not nice. It's not dignity. It's not decent. But there's an element of truth to it. We do things. We're motivated to go out to accomplish and to achieve because we have a need for that. 
We're built that way. God can't have needs. If he has needs, he isn't God. He's not deserving of our worship. He's just like us along the same continuum, only stronger, smarter, and more capable. But he has needs. By definition, God can't have needs. He can choose to make himself needy. He can't have needs. God doesn't need us to study Torah or to perform mitzvahs. God doesn't need us to be nice to each other. God doesn't need us to be compassionate to those who are broken. He wants us to do these things. He wants us to make ourselves meritorious. He craves for a reason we can't understand a relationship with us. Not because he has a need. Because a need is indicative of a deficiency, a lack. Somebody isn't complete without somebody else. A person needs social activity. A person needs friendship. A person needs acceptance. A person needs appreciation. We have needs if we were all by ourselves. and We wouldn't have any companionship, any kinship, any sense that somebody values and cares for us. We would be poorer for it. We'd be missing a part of our humanity because human beings have a need for all of the above. We have a need for it. But God can't have needs. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Hashem does this unbelievable kindness on something nobody else is compassionate or kind towards and not because he needs to. And that's the way it's been from the very first moment of our existence. So you're aware, contemplatively aware, deep-seatedly aware. You have a you yeda sheyeda roiv toiv walekim. You count your blessings. You look at the many gifts that God gives you. You go back to the beginning, to the ultimate gift the gift of conception, the gift of gestation and development and birth. And this is the chesed and the tova of HaKadosh Baruch So the Pas Lechem, he asks the question. He says, okay, let's look at the words here. The first time around it only says tov. The second time around it says chesed and tov. What's he getting at? What's the point? This is what he says. Milas chesed, the word kindness. Hu hatovas chinam. This means gratuitous goodness. Chesed, you dispense chesed, you give chesed. It means to give benevolently, gratuitously. Rabbeinu Bachaya makes two points about the ultimate gift of life that we received. The first point was, weren't, proverbially speaking, deserving. We didn't earn it. The second point is, God doesn't need this. He's not fulfilling his own needs. You are not a prop that's being used 
to fulfill somebody else's desire. The first word is, Hatovas chinam, this gratuitous goodness, addresses meblishi yoroi. You weren't deserving. So it was gratuitous goodness. It was real kindness. The second word of goodness refers when God gave you this, he didn't give you it because he had a need for it. Because if he had a need, he's not all good. It's self-serving. Self-serving goodness isn't really goodness. Goodness is when it's for the sake of goodness. We can think about this. We can actually envision it in our mind's eye. And we can be aware of it. And when it becomes our knowledge, our bias, our awareness, it's going to change us. Now Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar goes further. And he says, Ach vachesed. He says, yet, despite the fact that we were not deserving, despite the fact that it's not for God, so what, what is it for? And here the order is reversed. Starts off with nedava, generosity. Then it talks about goodness, and only afterwards it talks about chesed. And this is all kasher biyarno b'shara b'china in the gate of b'china min hasefer of this book chovat halavavot, as I've mentioned already. And like I said, you, you go, go back and watch in the middle of episode forty-eight for an even more detailed description of what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is speaking about. The commentary is drawn what he says in Shara Bechina. So all of this is out of God's goodness. Okay, we have a verbiage issue here now. Nedava toivava chesed. Before we started off, we said, Rav Tuv, only goodness. Then we went to Chesed and Tova. And we said the Chesed is because we're talking about a tiny drop. There was nobody to have mercy on even, so to speak. And then we talked about God's goodness. It's being done because, because He gives us, not because He needs. And now, Rabbeinu Bechaya uses a third term and reverses the order. Nedava, Tova, Vachesed. What's the pshat? What's going on here? The Nedaba Kedish says, Nedava, Vatova, Vachesed means Veloi, Machmaschar, Mitzvah, Baisesha. It wasn't because that there was uh, some kind of remuneration, some kind of reward that we deserved. We didn't do anything to deserve anything at the time. We were a drop. Whether we deserve what we have now is arguable. It's actually not even arguable. We don't deserve anything. But we, we do some good things. We're a drop. We're a drop. A drop of fluid. What do we deserve? So the Pas Lechem addresses this shift in verbiage. And he says the following. Nedava, generosity. This represents Tchilas Yisoyrus Ruach Harotzen This represents 
arousing, arousing a sense of desire to do good. So it's a spirit of generosity. As we say in English, a generous spirit that motivated kindness, that propelled me to do goodness. Says the Paslechem, why is there a switch of the order of terms? Why is it that first we talk about Chesed and Tova? And here we talk about Tova and Chesed. A lot of people uh, reading the book, whatever, chesed, tov, tov, chesed, let's not, let's not get, let's not sweat the details. They just rush through the material so they can get to the finish line. I want to finish reading this, studying this book, but, but I actually want to study it right. I, I don't want to miss the key elements because I'm so busy getting to the finish. We're talking about one of the greatest Torah minds of all time. To think that we owe him the decency of treating his words charitably. If he switches the order mid-sentence, it's probably a good reason for it. He's trying to say something to us. I think so. So this is the Paslechem's educated guess or supposition. He says, Betchila, in the beginning, he mentions first Chesed and then Tova. Because this is before there was anything. I mean, the, the very fertilization of the egg itself, the collision of one tiny sperm and into that egg in and of itself is a divinely choreographed event. So there was absolutely nothing. So therefore, since there's nothing, he starts off with the concept of chesed because once there's something, then you can do goodness to it. But before there was anything, you could be kind to do goodness afterwards. So God is kind, and then once there's fertilization, so then he's good the egg. The egg made its way down the fallopian tube. The egg was able to implant itself in the wall, in the uterine wall, and so on and so forth. And that's because, he says, in the image of creation itself, King David tells us in the 89th Psalm, Olam chesed yibane. Before there was a world, a universe, God built the universe or began to bring the universe into existence with chesed, with kindness. Now, however, we're talking about us. Ha-chesed v'ha-tova, the good, the kindness, and the goodness that God did begins with kindness and then goodness. But now we're talking about our recognition. We're talking about our knowledge, our awareness, our understanding, and translating in a very personal way. says the Paslechem, 
Now, ulam bebechinas hakoras chasdoi. The word hakora means to recognize, to recognize God's kindness. Ula heipech. We receive goodness. How do we know of God's kindness? From the goodness we receive. How do you know somebody is kind? You judge them by their actions. So you see the actions, and then after you see the actions, you can estimate what kind of person it is. They tell a story of a man who desperately wanted to have an approbation written for a book that he had authored from the Vilna Gaon. But the Vilna Gaon didn't give approbations. He had very, very high standards. He didn't give approbations. So the story goes that the Vilna Gaon had extraordinary respect for his mother, tremendous kibbutz aim, and he would visit her, I think, on a daily basis. So this man went to his mother and he pleaded with her that she should ask her son, the Vilna Gaon, to write something. So when he came, his mother said, could you please write something for this fellow? So the Vilna Gaon took a piece of paper and dipped a feather in ink and he wrote two words. Miva me. Miva me. He said, that's my approbation. Me for me. He says it's an acronym. Masecha yikarvucha, me. Your actions will be the thing that brings you close. Umasecha yirakechucha. It is your actions that will distance you. In other words, the Vilna Gaon said, "I don't know who this person is." How can I give approbation to what he's written without knowing the character of the author himself? What I could say, what I can say, he said, is that this person will demonstrate who he is. It'll be obvious. If indeed he is who he says he is, so then his works will be accepted. And if he isn't, then he isn't. We judge something by virtue of what we see. So how do you know God's kind. I know God's kind because I can look at what God gave us. So the Paslech and that says, therefore, the generous spirit, the generosity, the toiva, the goodness, which is indicative of the chesed of God's kindness. That's what we must become aware of. That's what we need to know. When we know that, everything will change. That will lead us down the path of Betachem. As King David, peace be upon him, said, and this takes us to the 40th Psalm. Rabot Asisa, Ata Hashem Elekai. Rabot Asita can be translated as you have done great things. It can also be translated as much have you done? If you take a look in the Mitsudas David, the commentary on the actual Tilim, he says, Niflaot Rabot Asita. You have done many wondrous things. And all these things 
there for us. So much have you done, or you have done great things. Hashem Elokai, you, Lord our God, Niflaotecha umachshavotecha. Lord our God, your wonders and your thoughts are Elenu, are for us. They're for us. You've done all these amazing things for us. We cannot in any way relate or speak in some kind of comparative term when it comes to God. To tell of or to, to speak of is entirely overwhelming. Really impossible for us to recount. As the Mitsudas Tzian says, Otsmu inyan ribui. It's beyond estimation. Enormous. Rashi puts it this way. He says, Bishvilenu barata olamcha. You created your world for us. And then he goes through the trajectory of Egyptian slavery and the liberation, the exodus. He says, you split the sea for us. You planned everything out for us through our 40-year sojourn in the desert. And of course, you brought us into the land of Israel. We cannot even begin to sing your praises. So what's the point of this verse? What, is the verse? what does the verse say to us, if you will? We said that Hashem did, does the ultimate goodness. It's the ultimate gift because He doesn't need it. We need it. And that's what the Pasuk proves. Rabbi Sosisa, Ata Hashem Alekai, you did all these amazing things. It's all for us. You did it for us, not for you. People do things for themselves, either because they expect recompense or reciprocity, or because they want to feel good about themselves. They have uh, an agenda. God has no agendas. As the Paslechem puts it, Paulois Rabbis Osisa. You did amazing, many, many wonderful things. And it was Rakla Tevasi, it was all for me. It's all for us. The Tevasi knew, as if to say, for our good. We cannot compare ourselves, liken ourselves to God because we do things. Because we're missing something. A boss of a dumb is kamas pu'ulase. How much does he work? How much does he do? Kifi erech chesrein tzarchei ledavar. Some people have a tremendous ambition. Ambition, simply stated, means they won't be satisfied until they accomplish something really big. So they're motivated. And other people are satisfied easier. So they don't, they're not motivated. They're happy. Or more accurately, satisfied. Satisfaction can be a terrible thing because it can kill people's work ethic. It can essentially freeze future development. That's why in Hayom Yom it says that Gashmias and Ruchmias are antithetical in nature. The material pursuit and spiritual pursuit couldn't be further apart. In the material realm, 
the luckiest, most fortunate person is the Sameach Bechalke, the person who is satisfied with what they have, happily satisfied. They're fine with what they have. But in a spiritual level, that's the worst thing to be able to experience. Unfortunately, it's the way most people are. They're satisfied with the spirituality and absolutely dissatisfied with the home they live in, the clothes they wear, the car they drive, and the job they have. It should be the other way around. Because if we're not satisfied with our spiritual standing, we'll keep growing, as we should. And the point that's being made for us is we do things because we're motivated to do things. We do goodness because it works for us. Hashem does goodness not to fill His need but for us. And therefore, life is the ultimate gift. God is the ultimate benefactor. And the, it is from our Creator that we receive the ultimate epitome of goodness and generosity. There's something, nothing else like it. Now, earlier, when we were narrating the different qualities, the different criteria that have to be met for us to be able to trust somebody. So we need to be sure that somebody is kind, generous to the nth degree. You must know this, says Rabbeinu Bechaya. You must know, you must have a deep-seated awareness of what God has done for you. Because when you have the Yediyah, Sheyeda, when you know the Rav Tuv, automatically you're going to find yourself trusting Hashem placing your sole reliance on the creator of heaven and earth who loves and cares about you. The Neder Bakredish in his commentary on, on this verse and the ideas that we glean from it says that you must know that the Neflois the Neflois are the things God does. Machshavaisecha is the thoughts he says, doesn't something seem wrong here? <laughs> Don't we first think and then do? Why does King David speak about God's actions and only afterwards his thoughts? He says, David HaMelech essentially is telling us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We think and then act. God acts and then thinks. That makes no sense. Right. But the truth is, we don't understand or fathom the knowledge or thought of God. Because as I mentioned a couple of minutes earlier, once we know how we term knowledge and what knowledge means to us, we realize it's impossible to use that kind of description for God. This is precisely what's being conveyed to us. It's precisely what Rabbeinu Bechaya is driving home when he says that God's kindness is beyond what we can fathom. The Neder Bakredish says, you should take a look in the commentary of the Tosfes Yom Tif. In Mesechat Avot, in the third chapter, in the 16th, in the 15th Mishnah, it says, Hakol Tzafoy, everything is foreseen. Everything is foreseen. natuna, And we have the freedom to choose. He says, one second, that doesn't seem to make sense. 
the Tana should have said, you have the freedom to choose and you should know that God will see everything. He said this idea of the freedom to choose is a very, very important idea in Judaism. This addresses the freedom of choice and the fact that God's aware of everything. Both are critical components in what we call Yiddishkeit, in our faith perspective of life. In our theology, if there is no freedom of choice, there is no Torah. The foundation of Torah, he says. This is, this is actually Ha'iker Asher Alav Yisod Kol Torah. There is one thing that the entire Torah is based on. V'hi Habechira. If I can't choose what's good or bad, how can I be culpable for anything? How could mitzvahs have any meaning? A mitzvah can never be given to somebody. A commandment can't be given to somebody if they're not capable of fulfilling the commandment. It may be very difficult. It may be very painful. It may require enormous sacrifice and commitment. <laughs> but at the same time, if it's impossible to act otherwise, God couldn't give us a mitzvah. God couldn't give us a commandment about it. It's only because God knows what we do and don't that the idea of judgment, consequence, punishment, retribution can come. So the Mishnah sort of said, everybody's got the freedom to choose. And you have HaKel Tzafi. Hashem sees everything. Why would it say everything is foreseen Everything is seen, and you have the freedom of choice. Says the Teisvis Yomtev, without any shadow of doubt, He wants to us to take note and to understand. God does not only know what we did, He knows what we will do. But this in no way gets in the way of freedom of choice. Despite the fact that God knows, you have the choice. The fact that God knows what you will choose does not diminish your freedom to choose. Imagine if somebody can know what you're going to do tomorrow. You're still going to be the one to choose to do it. The Tana wants to address this very thing. This is discussed, incidentally, by Maimonides in great detail in the laws of Tshuva. Later on in that same commentary, the Tesis Yomtev says, You can't say that because God knows what a person will do, the person is forced to go ahead and do it. He has no freedom of choice. For God, there is no knowing of what will happen because for God, the past, the present, and the future are all same. What does that mean? We don't know. So you can't be in two places at one time. You can't be in two places at the same time. You can't, you can't be in two times in the same place. Because we can only exist within the tiny, slender figment of now, in this moment. We can only exist in the here and now. And yet, for God, there is no here and now. There is, the notion of a past and a future doesn't exist for God. So you're asking, but if God knew what I was going to do, so then I didn't have the freedom to choose. Says the Tesh God is not 
within the realm of time. God's knowledge is not what we call knowledge. In Suffolk Biad Habrius, he says, It's impossible for us to fathom the meaning of God's knowledge. And that's why the Rambam and Manali says, God's knowledge is not like our knowledge. And that's why he says, Everything was seen. He uses past tense because that's the only way we can understand everything being revealed to God. So the Chavis Alvavis really then is quoting a verse and is speaking about the knowledge of God that we can't fathom. If we can't fathom the knowledge of God, we certainly can't fathom the kindness and the generosity of God. The point that's being made to us is this incredible gift that Hashem has given us is something we need to be aware of. And when you're aware of it, you stop to have anxiety and worry about the future. Who brought you till this point? Who took care of you up till now? By initial level, God did. God will continue to provide for you because He loves you, because He is the epitome of goodness, because He is the greatest paradigm of generosity, because His is the ultimate gift. I want to finish off today with some beautiful words penned by the previous Rebbe, a mimer that he delivered and then wrote in 1934. It's printed in Memorim Kuntresim, Volume 2. He says, We can see that a person can learn Torah. He can learn a sugya, a topic. He can learn it with tremendous, assiduous focus and knowledge. He can know this. He knows it really well. He knows each detail of this topic, and he has it it clear, crystal clear. He has it all, so to speak, categorized. Everything's in its right place. He understands the jurisprudence. And yet just in his mind. The Friedrich Rebbe gives an example of a person who would be forced to sell something. Is it a sale? In other words, if I was coerced into a business deal, is the acquisition an acquisition? Do the jurisdictions really change? If a person made a compromise, is that called a gift, proverbially speaking? If a person, or is that called a sale, is forgiveness of an obligation called a gift? This is all like theoretical jurisprudence. And it says you can have a person who knows all of this. But he's aloof to it. It's just academic. Then you have a person who was forced to sell something. He actually didn't want to do this business transaction. He was coerced into it. He talks about this in a whole different way. Friedrich Rebbe says that a person can speak about it, but there's no passion. And then a person can speak about it. Rav, with great fervor, 
enthusiasm, extremely animated. the heart's red. The heart is speaking. The person is angry about what happened. And he's looking for different ways to be able to delegitimize the sale or get out of this agreement. And all of a sudden, his mind is working differently and he sees new insight. It's not because he learned anything he didn't know before. It's because it became personal. And this, my dear friends, said the Friedrich Rebbe, is how we must study, study an idea about God. I want to conclude with this. Rabbeinu Bachaya is talking to us about the kindness that God gives us. It's not a theory. It's something we experience. We should know this. We should be aware of it. It will lead us to a heartfelt sense of betachin of trust in Hashem. The novelty of the Chabad approach is that this idea of yeda, of knowing and being aware of it, is not only limited to the gift of life we actually experience, but even things which are of a loftier nature that we can't quite experience or wrap our heads or hearts around should still be experienced in a personal way. There's a beautiful story that's told over in the name of one of the great elder chassidim of the previous generation. It's a metaphor. And the metaphor was that there was a chassid. He was a malamed, a teacher. You know, like schoolhouse on the prairie. We'd go to a place where there were simple people. He would teach their children to come together at a common location. And the peasants, the Jewish peasants, were very uneducated. They did okay. The farmers were able to provide themselves. But, and they wanted the children to have more education than they. And the story goes that one of these peasants receives a letter one day. And he can't read. So he goes with his son to the Malamed, to the little cheder on the prairie. And he says, can you please read the letter to me? And he reads the letter. And when he reads the letter, the person who received the letter falls away in a dead faint. This is a story that uh, the Shmuel Betzalel, Rashbatz, one of the great Hasidim of the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzedek and the Rebbe Marash used to say. And what happened? Well, what happened was that the contents of the letter were conveying to this farmer that his father died. So the question is, you read the letter and you didn't faint. He only heard you reading the letter and he did faint. What's the difference? Is it the difference? It's his father. My friends, when we are studying about Hashem, you can hear about a God, about the God, but instead, hear about your God, Dain Tata, your Father in Heaven. Rabbeinu Bachaya speaks about the ultimate gift of life as something that we can really internalize and personalize. But more broadly speaking, in today's day and age, Chassidus Chabad is telling us we can personalize all of this. And we must. Because only if and when we personalize it can it become the catalyst for life-changing transformation and spiritual development. And that's how we build Betachen. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. Your participation is valued and appreciated. I'd appreciate it if you hit like, if you could share, and if you aren't yet, or if you have friends or relatives who might benefit, please 
Let's get them to subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Shrovey Mendel Kaplan. Thank you again for joining. Have an amazing day.